0: Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mack. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. Tonight we're doing something a little different. We're having a throwback episode, followed by a catch-up conversation with the speaker. If you listened to episode one or have attended any of the live events, you know that Story Night began in Santa Barbara over a decade ago before it spread to Oregon and into this podcast. Well, a couple of years ago, Leslie Miller shared her story at one of the Santa Barbara live events, and tonight you'll get to hear that recording. Stay tuned after because we've got Leslie with us tonight with an update to her story. Let's listen in now to Leslie in 2018
1: that is a brave man. <laughs> but he's also put up with a lot from me this week. We moved houses and I was not my best self. So I, we didn't know when we were moving that this was going to be happening and there was a lot of crazy that came out. So thank you. <laughs> and thank you all for being here tonight. And thank you, Hannah, for singing. Hannah gets to babysit for our kids. I don't know if kids too is the right word, but we're thankful for her in a lot of ways. And you are all very thankful that I am not the one at the piano tonight. So, I'm really honored to be here with you tonight. And I feel like I have the best seat in the house looking out on all of you. I love this church. And the women in this room are one of the big reasons I love this church. So it's a true honor to look out on all of your faces. Frances Chan says that life is about Jesus, and we are not here to tell our story, but his story. And so I think it's in his redemption that our unique lives and our tragedies and our joys and our sorrows can be a way that others see Christ. So I'm going to do my best tonight to offer the gift of both my story and one that is so much greater than my own. So I'm going to get started with a little story within the story. When I was a little girl, I had a recurring dream every year on the night before school started. And in the dream, I'm at my grandparents' house um, in Rolling Hills, California. They live on acres and acres of land. But for some reason, in the dream, there is a little maze in their front yard, and it's made out of hedge bushes. And in it, there's a wolf that I know that's in there that's roaming. And one wrong turn, and I know that the wolf is going to get me. And I'm completely terrified every year. But in all those years of dreaming and worrying, I remain safe. So long before the dream started in 1982, to be exact, I was born in a hospital. That's my dad holding me. I was overlooking the Pacific Ocean. I was born with long legs and those have obviously stuck around. Strawberry blonde hair, which has not stuck around and is no longer natural. This color isn't. And today that all means that I am 36 years old, 5 foot, 11 inches tall, and I am still totally smitten with the saltwater that I looked out on on the day that I was born. I mostly grew up in Irvine. I'm the oldest of three children, and I have a younger brother and a younger sister who I bossed around in only the way that firstborn children can. I was a rule follower from a very young age, and I still am today, for better or worse. But for as responsible as I was when it came to... Schoolwork or behavior, I lacked in athleticism. And I don't just mean in a last kid picked for the soccer team sort of way. I mean, I had numerous freak running, walking, and tripping injuries from the ages of 7 to 12. Stitches, burns, lighting my clothing on fire, <laughs> broken bones, you name it, it probably happened to me. I'm not really sure what caused my klutziness, but I do enjoy having something to blame it on. And so I'm going to blame it on this big, tall frame, which had a number of very gangly, awkward years where my pants didn't fit. And I towered not over just my classmates, but everyone. So this is me as a kid when I was, before I was tall and gangly. And then I towered over all my junior high friends. And that would be. My freshman year boyfriend, who looks like he's nine, and he's not. And then my entire Japanese exchange family. So I am like 13 or 14 in that photo. So when people say, it must be so great being tall, I love how tall you are, I'm like, hmm, feeling you know. So. Growing up, um, faith wasn't a huge part of my childhood growing up. I think morality probably was. I had a strong sense of right and wrong, and that was kind of what my parents instilled in us at home. My parents said that we we were Christians. They were raised Christian, and I thought that that was mostly just people that went to church and followed the Ten Commandments and that kind of thing, and we mostly did. So we were Christians. I was a really quiet kid. I was a bookworm. And when I wasn't injuring myself around the house, I preferred to hole up in my room um, on my denim beanbag chair and read. And I'll never forget one day in seventh grade, my mom tromped into the room and said, sweetie, your dad and I have something to talk to you about. We're a little concerned that you're spending so much time in your beanbag chair reading and that you don't have any other friends. And so we've decided that we're going to send you to church camp. And I think I just kind of blinked and hugged my babysitter's club book a little tighter. And then I said, okay, because firstborn people-pleasing child. So I went. So as a mom myself, I understand that tendency to micromanage our children's social life. And as much as I don't know that I really needed more friends or micromanaging, I totally appreciate my mom's boldness because I was ripe for faith and church camp was the place to find it. I was in an age where I had a lot of questions like, why are we Christians if we don't really go to church? And why did I get baptized? Isn't that sort of a thing that you should decide for yourself? And I don't really know what baptism even is. So there was a lot of questions that I was mulling over in that beanbag chair in my introspective, introverted ways as a junior hire. So off I went to church camp in with my one best friend in a van full of boys who told fart jokes the whole way there, and the van overheated, and it was just one big, grand adventure after the next. A few nights after our drive up to camp, around a campfire, some of the youth staff told their stories. But unlike the story I'm telling you so far, that's pretty just normal average childhood, theirs were childhoods that were filled with a lot more pain. Divorces, abuse, drugs, alcohol, violence, all of them talked about how eventually their faith in Christ and the work of a greater spirit in their daily life is what helped them in their darkest hours. In some ways, I could relate to none of their pain, and yet in another way, I spent my entire childhood trying my hardest to get it right, and I still felt like I was falling short. I was a should girl, and I still am to a certain extent. I think should people believe there's a certain way that a person needs to be or to act, and we're usually disappointed in ourselves and sometimes even in other people because we don't measure up the way we want to. So at that age, I started asking, could all this Jesus stuff be real? That I, This idea of a God that loves us so much that he made a way for the sadness of the world to someday cease and for the beauty in our lives to continue for eternity. It seemed like a real stretch to me, but it was also intriguing, this idea of faith in the unseen. So as I went to bed that night, our leaders asked if anyone wanted to hike Half Dome the next day, you know, that big ol' rock in Yosemite, that haftum. It usually requires some kind of athletic ability and strength to get up to the top, that haftum. So I've already established my athletic ability up until this point in my life, so I don't think I need to go into why this probably wasn't a good idea and not something that I would normally gravitate towards. But I think I felt like if God can really change drug addicts and forgive stealing and lying and cheating, then surely he could get me up a mountain. So... I thought it was kind of like a good test of like, are you really out there? Or at least that's what I recall. So we set out the next morning, just a tad bit later than we probably should have, and we hiked all day with just a tiny amount of water. And for those of you, has anyone in the room hiked Half Dome before? I figured a couple with you. You guys are you guys are active. It's really steep. So I found a photo that would be the last part of Half Dome. It's eight to nine miles to this point from the valley floor, and then you get to this point, and up and down is on those same cables, so you're kind of like squeezing by people as you're hauling yourself up, and um, it's hard, and it's slick, and it's freaky, and people have died on those cables, and I just don't know what the youth group staff were thinking taking us up there. So I had been looking for a test of faith, and we'll just say that an out-of-shape junior hire hiking for 12 hours straight in the wilderness was definitely a test of faith. I didn't die. I made it to the top. And I'm happy to say that those 12 hours, a few of which the last were in complete darkness with no flashlights because they didn't remember bringing flashlights, um, was a key part in my decision to accept Christ into my life later that week. <laughs> so... I was fortunate enough to be re-baptized that same week in the Yosemite River. There's no more of a spectacular place to be baptized. And when I came back from camp, I had a few new friends, including Jesus. No one was more surprised than my mom. Or me, for that matter. Um, And then I became that Christian girl. The one that dove deep into the Christian subculture of the 90s. And I had Jesus patches all over my canvas backpack. And I had the WWJD bracelet. And I had the Teen Study Bible under my arm, and I had the verse on my Letterman's jacket. I just—I went all out. And I am so grateful that, that that was my experience of junior high and high school, that I had a faith that was my own. I loved those years. I loved Jesus. I still do. But I loved that simple faith of my younger self. I think in a time of life when so many people struggle, that God helped me to navigate those teen years with mostly joyful memories and relationships. So when it came to time to pick a college, I knew that I wanted to go to a Christian college, and I also knew that I wanted to be there on the beach, so I went to Westmont. For those of you who have attended Westmont, you know that there's Vespers, which is this casual Sunday night service on campus. And as a freshman, you really go because the last song of the night, everyone links arms around each other's waist in this, like, very hormonally charged sort of way. <laughs> so after the service, everyone's kind of lingering around looking for a spouse because that's what you do. (laughs) And I turned to the group of guys that were next to me and one of them introduced himself as Jonathan. And he had really rosy cheeks is what I remember. He was wearing some kind of Teva like shoe, which indicated that he was not from California and he was very friendly and I was friendly back. And although it was just the first weeks of school, he seemed like he would be a guy that I could be good friends with. I was not thinking I would date him. I don't think he thought he would date me. So he was standing with a bunch of friends, and I remember him saying, oh, they don't go to Westmont. We met in a Dave Matthews Band chat room. And I said, well, I don't know what dates this more. First, the Dave Matthews Band reference or the chat room reference. For those of you in this room who are younger than 30, and there's some of you chat rooms, are the first way that people talk to each other on the internet. So, but at that point in in the year 2000, they were starting to be like a little on the weird side. And so I said, really? I don't know that you guys actually met in a Dave Matthews band chat room. And he said, oh no, we really did. And he looked over at the guys and all of them were like, "Really did?" I was like, okay, it's kind of weird. It wasn't until years later that I realized that he had lied to me. They were all lying. I met my husband at a worship service. And he lied to me in our first conversation. This is the stuff that romance is made of. So 13 years later, Jonathan and I were best friends for about a year. And I naively took his interest in me as strictly platonic. It was kind of dumb. I was dumb. And he was very, very smart. He was slow and steady and fully himself and silly and patient. While I indecisively flirted with him. For a whole year, and then he took me to a formal, and then he suddenly and I mean very suddenly, under fluorescent campus lights, kissed me out of nowhere and He says that I kissed back, and I suppose that I did because i 'm not one to cause conflict, but um, <laughs> inside inside, I was very concerned because my views on dating and marriage and love up until this point were super messed up, and I thought what if this kiss leads to marriage and I'm not ready for marriage? So this can't happen. You're all rolling your eyes a little bit. I'm rolling my eyes at myself. (laughs) So after I successfully avoided him for two full days after the kiss, he walked into my dorm room and essentially said, what is wrong with you? And I had all the excuses, really. I did. And so do you know what he did? He threw down the ultimatum. He gave me a choice. He said, I'm not going to be your eternal best friend, so you either date me or the friendship is over. Boom! Done! His patience was done. And you know what? It was super sexy. (laughs) So he left my dorm room, and I just sat there for a few minutes, kind of dumbfounded, and then I ran to the prayer chapel in the middle of campus, which is this beautiful little building that everybody goes to. And that's the very Westmont thing to do, to run there. In the evening... And I run up, but everybody knows if you go there, you don't go in before you like kind of know if there's anyone inside, cause that would be awkward. So at night it's all lit up and then you can kind of peek in and see if anyone's in there. Who do you think was in there with his head in his hands? Jonathan Miller. So I think it was then that I thought, yes, I, I think I can try dating him. And so we did, this is our first date. How funny is that? We both are so little. He has been very, very patient with my neurotic flaws. We all have them. I have them. And he's loved me so well. So this is this is our obviously our graduation from Westmont. I was a communication studies there. I learned a ton. I was, I feel like I really was there to make a big gaggle of girlfriends and I did and to find God on a deeper level and I did and to wrestle with all the questions that I think young 20-somethings should be wrestling with. So we waited six whole months after graduation to get engaged because we felt like this was the responsible thing to do and we'd have real life experience before getting married. So he proposed to me he let me think that my best friend had won an all expense paid trip for her and a guest to New York City for the weekend at Christmas time. But when I showed up in Manhattan, instead of finding my friend, Jonathan was there under the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center, got down on his knee. Who does that? I mean, he did it. He totally pulled it off. I was so confused, so nervous, so excited. And I obviously said yes. He, Jonathan is not a guy that is seeking attention. He's just not a flashy guy. I like to think I'm not either, but that's probably the least humble thing to say. Um, but really, I would have been fine with just a standard Sunset Beach proposal, and he swept me off my feet and went all out, and it was super romantic. So we were babies when we got married, 22 and 23, and now, of course, I think that's the craziest thing ever to get married so young. On our wedding day, my friend Erin sang for us during the ceremony. It was the Nicole Nordeman song, Gratitude. And I remember her reading the lyrics with me a few weeks before the wedding and commenting that it was a really odd choice for a wedding song because the song is about two people telling God they're in a dry desert land. They are thirsty. They are afraid. They are begging for mercy in the form of a storm and telling God that even if he doesn't send his provision of rain, that they will give thanks for the lesson of learning how to thirst. And while there's no way we could have known the storms ahead for us, the mercy that we would beg for, that song felt really prophetic at that time for me. So at the time, we attended this church. We attended Santa Barbara Community Church, where Jonathan worked with a junior high group, and our home group leaders were John and Susie Lemoot. Susie's probably here somewhere. And when John, found out, when John found out that Jonathan wanted to go to law school, he said, well, maybe you should come work for me as a paralegal at my law firm. Because it would be really good for your resume. You could kind of cut your teeth make sure you like law. And so he did. He worked for John. And then he Johnson started applying for law schools. And we began praying a lot more seriously about our future and what would be next. Would he get into school? Where would he get into school? I'm sure you've all experienced those feelings at some point in your life, perhaps many times, applying for positions where maybe control is completely out of your hands, waiting for children, big life changes. I think being at the feet of God's mercy and his guidance is now one of my favorite places to be, but at the time it all felt really dramatic, like we were the first people on earth ever to have to wait for God for an answer on anything. So uh, with so many unknowns in the future, we figured it was a really great time in life to have a grand adventure. We don't have kids. We don't have any commitments. Now's our time is what we thought. So we were really open to anything and going anywhere. And, but we were poor. We were newlyweds and we thought a three month Europe trip was not going to be in the cards for us. So what were we going to do? Short term missions. We were up for it. I spent time in Japan and China during high school and college, and I had always wanted to go back to China. I had this vision of, like, working in an orphanage there. And so we started kind of putting the word out to to friends, like, we have this three-month period of time. Do you know of anyone who might need someone to come down somewhere to help? help?" And sure enough, a friend of a friend knew of one of the major leaders of China's underground church movement, movement, and he said he wanted help. And so we fundraised. We sent fundraising letters to the missions committee here at this church and to friends, and then we packed up all of our belongings and put them into storage, and off we went. Although it's been well over 10 years since our time there, the church in China has changed in some ways. There's still so much risk in being a Christian in China. The persecution there is very real, but so is the faith of the believers there. The man that we traveled with was born in China and he was educated in the States and he spent equal time in both places. And because of his unique background, knowing multiple languages and having access to the West, he was able to go into China and he would bring resources for pastors such as training, teaching seminary, bringing Bibles in, and a lot of times just bringing money in to pastors that don't have any other financial support. And so he went by a lot of different names and nicknames to stay safe. And we often felt like we were traveling around with a CIA agent. He would like, you know, flip out his cell phones and stuff. And so we spent three months traveling around the country with him. We went everywhere from huge cities to remote villages, from cave churches to underground seminaries to apartment home groups. And we taught English to pastors who wanted to eventually leave China and spread the gospel to other countries, which is really humbling if you think about that for a little bit. We felt very underqualified compared to their passion and knowledge of the Chinese believers. I can't remember what photo I have here. That's a photo of one of the underground, or one of the cave churches we went to. And there we are on the Great Wall. When I was in China, it was the first time I began to really, truly face my privilege and my idols. We brought four huge suitcases with us. And it was my effort at being completely comfortable the entire time that I was there. And I'll never forget our host commenting on the amount of stuff that we had with us. I was so embarrassed because they were rotating between two or three clothes that they would wash in their laundry line, like most people around the world. And I remember spending an exorbitant amount of money to mail back a lot of my belongings. I wasn't ready to give them up or to just leave them there with people, but I didn't want to look at them and be reminded of my wealth and my addiction to comfort. So at one point in our travels, as we attended a house church meeting, in rural central China, we got notification that the police were on their way to break up the meeting. And I remember running through the street, looking for a taxi and just praying and really believing that God could make me invisible. I remember the guilt because my tall blonde frame, our white skin, um, had drawn attention to a church gathering that probably otherwise would have been safe. I remember thinking, should we have just gone to Hawaii instead? And in some ways, I think the answer is Yes. We'd been looking for a grand adventure, aren't we all? We thought we wanted to see the world and experience another culture. And we thought we wanted to stand on the Great Wall of China and try exotic foods and see this persecuted church with our own eyes. And we got all of that. And we also got completely and totally flattened with humility because we realized that our safe life, the one that we're attempted to chase, and protect sometimes stands in direct opposition to the adventure that I think our heart truly longs for. We tried to fill that longing with an adventure of travel, but I think we really longed for that faith free fall, the one where we say this life is not my own. We spent three months in China praying that God would be clear about Jonathan's desire to attend law school and that he would make a way for him to go. And I said, I would be really happy to go anywhere you apply except for that armpit hole of a city, Sacramento. And that summer, after returning from China, he got into two and only two schools, and I'm sure you know where they were both located, Sacramento. Maybe after China, God wasn't so sure that I could make the right or more uncomfortable choice for my life, so we went to a very hot city that was nowhere near an ocean, which was really the only reason I thought it was an armpit hole, because I had grown up near the beach, and he attended UC Davis. And I would wear really cute clothes and bike to work. I worked at a little PR firm downtown, and I'd get interviewed for the evening news, and I felt like I was such a business career girl. And for a while, I tried to really not like that town, and we quickly fell in love with everything about it. Our little East Sacramento life. We had rich college friendships that were there. We went skiing on the weekends. We went out and enjoyed the food scene. And by the time he graduated three years later, we really loved that place. But we knew that the next thing needed to happen, a job. And so we started praying for whatever that next right thing would be. And we assumed that it would be anywhere but Sacramento. Maybe I assumed that. We'd walk the long, quiet streets in our neighborhood and we would ask God's clear vision for what could be next. We'll go anywhere, God, anywhere. We'd say, we'll do anything, out of state, in state, out of the country, in the country. We are your servants. Take us anywhere. Just give us a job and take us somewhere because it was 2009 and work was scarce for everybody at the time. So eventually during his summer spent studying for the bar, he was offered a position at a firm that he wasn't really that excited about, doing a type of law that didn't really interest him. But it was right in the one place we thought we'd never leave, which was Sacramento. And there we were again with one place and one choice and really grateful for God's provision, but a little startled at how different it looked from what we thought it would be. I think it was as if God was trying to show us over and over again that he's in control and that we can simply just sit back and let him do his thing. So Jonathan started his job and suddenly we had two incomes and the ability to truly pursue this idea of the American dream. We'd been married six years. We had spent most of it in Sacramento and it felt like time for the inevitable house, baby. So we did both. I took a positive pregnancy test one morning in November and we got an offer accepted on a house the very next day. And we just plunged into the next stage with all the fear and trembling and remodeling that came with it. I think it was this season of just really sweet and total abundance where things seemed to go right. Everything seemed to go right until all of a sudden it didn't go right. We welcomed our sweet Anna in july 2011 and we really just um settled into this overwhelming happiness i felt like motherhood came naturally for me and while i was overwhelmed at times it was really simply just this beautiful summer of enjoying our little family and uh, kind of reveling in the early weeks of her life during that time jonathan began experiencing chest pains And the doctor told him that he thought they were probably heartburn related to the stress of having a new baby, which made sense. But after two months, when the antacids never worked and the pain grew more frequent, he went back to the same doctor and he demanded a complete physical. I will be totally honest with you when I say I was not concerned at all. If you'd asked me at the time, I would probably tell you that I didn't really pay attention. Because I had my own pain and recovery and distraction going on with a new baby. And that person needed my full attention. So I didn't even realize that he'd made another doctor's appointment. I remember turning my phone on after a flight to see my parents and retrieving a voicemail. And it said, call me. I'm at the doctor. There's a mask in my chest. And then I remember his call several days later. The one where, alone in my kitchen with the baby sleeping, he said, It's cancer and I'm on my way home. I don't think anything prepares you for a moment like that one. The one where a million thoughts go through your head, and you cry out to God with the same kind of screams and sobs of childbirth, the ones that you don't even really recognize are your own or are coming from you. Is this me yelling, you ask yourself? Is this really my life? I remember screaming at God in those first moments. That was my instinct to just yell at him with the full force of my anger and the full force of my desires. I'd always approached God with a lot of respect and tidiness until that point. A lot of pleases and thank yous and formulas and gentleness. I'd talk to him the way that you would talk to a boss with requests. Your will be done. But in that moment, I talked to him like you would address a government worker at the DMV when he says, you need to go home and get more paperwork if you want to get what I came here for. (laughs) Nuh-uh, I don't think so. I know what I want, and I'm going to tell you what I want. And so that's what I did. I cried out to God. There is no part of me that believes that approaching God with boldness will magically cause him to change his mind. And there is also no part of me that thinks that God only answers tidy requests. Because all those years of requests and prayers for his wisdom and leading and guidance in our life had led us to this point, the place where he'd turn from a boss to a father. One that can take our weaknesses, who is sympathetic to our tears, who draws us to himself when this broken world breaks our hearts. In those early days, there were a lot of unknowns. One was... And I, an identified sack on Jonathan's heart that would make surgery really difficult. And until he had surgery, we wouldn't know the type of cancer, which means we wouldn't know if he was going to live or if he was going to die or somewhere in between. So that night when all the unknowns felt really overwhelming, that first night of his diagnosis, we sent an email out to everyone we knew. Part of us really wanted prayer. And I think Part of me really felt like it would be very awkward to run into someone at the grocery store and have to be like, Oh, yeah, have you heard that my husband has cancer? So I just figured if we dispersed the information, then it wouldn't be so awkward. And probably some of you in this room got that email and joined our prayer team. Immediately, that first prayer, that sack on his heart was answered. He went in for his next appointment, it had disappeared. We never know what it was. I think some would call it a medical mistake. I like to call it a miracle. I can't wait to meet Jesus someday and ask him. To replay all the miracles that he did. In my family's life. I think that there's a lot of miracles that happen to all of us. That we don't give him credit for. I am certain that one's going to be on the highlight reel. Okay. Got that part over. The crying part over. Eventually, but not for several months. Jonathan received a diagnosis of stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. There were a lot of biopsies for him, um, a surgery, bone marrow draws, a lot of unanswered questions. I remember asking my Aunt Lynn, who um, was married to a Navy SEAL. He's not a Navy SEAL anymore. I said, I mean, I'm assuming that all of you have had a period of waiting in your life. That's horrible. So I asked Lynn, she's talking to me about, about Jonathan, and she says, let me tell you a story about what Bill told me. Bill's your husband. He said... That the worst and scariest moments for him during combat battle were not the firing of guns or bombs being set off, but in the moment of floating around in the dark ocean, trusting that his comrades were gonna come find him out there and put him back on the boat. It's the waiting in the darkness when you're not sure the wait is ever gonna end that is real torture. I think waiting is hard because it's an act of trust. And sometimes we feel very alone in our waiting, even when God is there. During this time, I found great comfort in Lamentations 3, 25 through 30, which says, God proves to be good to the woman who passionately waits, to the woman who diligently seeks. It's a good thing to quietly hope, quietly hope for help from God. It's a good thing when you're young to stick it out through the hard times, when life is heavy and hard to take, go off by yourself, enter the silence, bow in prayer, don't ask questions, wait for hope to appear. Don't run from trouble, take it full face. The worst is never the worst. And so that's what we did. I didn't question God a whole lot. I felt like he had shown up for me so many times and provided in so many ways that it almost felt like a slap in the face to say, well, this one thing isn't going my way. And so you must not be there. You must not know what you're doing. We just kept seeking him and we spent time with him. And we quietly hoped, even when we knew that sometimes hopes are completely crushed. We bowed in prayer and we worshiped with a lot of tears. And sometimes I was really angry Jonathan started chemo just a few days for Christmas, and I felt so sorry for him, and so sorry for myself, the timing of that time of year. There's a David Crowder song, the one that goes he is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane. I am a tree, bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. And I remember listening to that song on the way to chemo. Both of us just crying. A few days later, he was so sick from his first treatments that we bought last-minute airline tickets back to my parents our, both of our parents' homes for Christmas instead of driving. JetBlue gave him a whole row to himself in the back seat, and then I had a whole row with the baby and he laid down and as soon as we landed, we drove him to the emergency room in Orange County. At one point, I had to go back to my parents' house to breastfeed the baby. And my mom, when I got there, had already given her a bottle of formula. It was the first one she'd gotten. And if you're a mom, you know, it's like this whole thing. i should I breastfeed? When should I get formula? And I was so sad that she had decided to do that. It was just that one of those many moments where I felt like I wasn't being the mom that I wanted to be. And I wasn't being the wife that I wanted to be. I was learning two new roles. And they both required a lot of me. And it wasn't easy. And I wasn't always very graceful. Like on that particular day, I drove back to the hospital where we bickered. And I cried. And then the doctors finally released him with some medicine. But before we got in the car, he threw up all over the place. And I remember we both just looked at each other and started laughing. And then we just ran. Like, we didn't even tell anyone. We're just like, (laughs) it's Christmas. We're out of here. (sighs) Jonathan spent six months doing chemo every two weeks and working a few days in between each treatment. And during that time, we had a huge crew of people that loved us and supported us and brought us meals and housekeeping, babysitting, all the things. I didn't return to work, but I learned to settle into this new role of mom and caregiver, Giving, learning to give him shots, learning how to wrestle with his mortality, feeding the baby. I attended every chemo appointment with him, pumped breast milk in one of the little back rooms, and kind of looked at my life away in a way that I think all of our friends were looking at it, just in a lot of disbelief. It's just really my life. I think the hardest thing about walking with a loved one through any type of Life threatening season is that you don't know if it's going to be a season or if it's going to be forever. He was terrified he was going to die, but didn't want to tell me that and worry me. And I was terrified he was going to die, but I didn't want to tell him that or worry him. So we couldn't connect with each other in all the ways that we were so used to connecting. After a couple months of really protecting our emotions from each other, and then for me, like kind of building up some bitterness or resentment or anger, I hit bottom. And eventually I saw a counselor to deal with all those fears and the guilt. And eventually Jonathan came too. It was so good. I think I just want to use this moment to say counselors in the room, you're amazing. Everyone needs a counselor on their speed dial for those awful moments. Sometimes they're just bickering moments. But I think seeing a counselor has the worst stigma and it just shouldn't. So when I look back on that time and when I, when I really look back on all my adult years so far, there's this common theme of community that can't be ignored. My life is richer and deeper, and I think I'm a lot wiser because of these deep, deep relationships from college friends who showed up during that time to Lori, the counselor, to neighbors on our street, to coworkers, to women that were mentoring me. The gift of their presence taught me how to offer that presence to others, and I don't always do it right, but gosh, it's such a blessing. Just before Anna turned one, Jonathan finished his last chemo. Jonathan, I'm so sorry. I'm showing everyone this picture. If I showed a picture of myself right after him, I don't think I would do it. Anyway, you've seen him now. He's very handsome. His hair is back. He finished his last round. He was declared in remission. And last year, he hit the five-year mark. And his long-term prognosis is really good. I am so grateful that I can stand here and tell a story that doesn't end in death, and I'm also so aware that it could have gone another way, and I'm so aware that it's gone another way for many of you in this room. That is something that could still happen for him, or for me, or for our kids. He survived, but he was left with physical scars and emotional scars, and I was left with some scars, too. I came out, I think in the beginning, death felt like the biggest and only potential thief for us. And eventually I learned that cancer shows up in other ways too. Acid in your throat, lungs that breathe shallow, a heart that somehow just drops from chest to stomach for no particular reason on no particular days. I think in many ways watching Jonathan's battle led to my own distress in the human body, in my human body, in his human body. I think at times it threatens how I function, I can become completely convinced that one of us in our house, a lot of times it's me, is dying. Fear will overtake me for weeks at a time. It disappears after a lot of prayer, a lot of self-talk, a lot of reading, my Bible, sometimes simply time. Post-cancer anxiety is not constant, but it crops up in times of stress for me when I have too much on my plate and too many people to answer to. And I'm still learning what aggravates that anxiety, and I'm still learning how to manage it and what to do with the fears and really just still learning that despite my own deep, deep faith in God's mercy and goodness and how he showed up for us, that it's still possible to not trust him at times. I suppose that the gift, the greatest gift of cancer is that again and again, I'm learning to put aside all of my luggage, that grappling for safety and for comfort, the bucket lists, the five-year plans, the idea of a starter home and a retirement plan— those are not necessarily bad things, but can we all agree that they give us that illusion of control that we really don't have? It's hard for me to believe this illusion of control anymore. Jonathan and I dream, of course, but it's rare that we put timelines on our dreams. I return to the idea of holding my goals and dreams loosely, letting Proverbs nineteen twenty one rest on my soul. Many are the plans of a woman's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails, It's a gift when God allows instability in our life. After Jonathan finished his chemo treatment, we became quickly and very unexpectedly pregnant with our second baby, Owen. And a few weeks after finding out that I was pregnant, something kind of crazy happened. One weekend, it was November of 2012, we were at a friend's birthday party, and a man came up to Jonathan and said, I believe I have a word from God for you. And I was standing right there trying to listen in. Because if he has a word for Jonathan, it's probably going to affect me. Let's just be honest. And did. Like many of you in this room, Jonathan and I only attended churches where the prophetic hearing from God, a voice from God was really weird. And I don't think Jonathan and I felt comfortable telling that man to just kind of like buzz off. So we didn't, but we politely stopped and listened. And he said, God told me he has a career change for you. I don't think it's going to be necessarily right away, but it's coming. That's all, I, that's all I heard. So I'd like to say that we were very friendly and gracious and thankful, but I think we were both like, okay, thanks, or something like that. That was weird, Jonathan said. Totally, I agreed. But the very next day, his office pulled him into a meeting. His job wasn't as secure as we'd thought, and there were unknowns for the direction of his firm. So after a long year of battling for his life and then raising a new baby and then now preparing for another new baby, we were totally beat. And then there's this lingering, like, maybe the firm's not going to have a job. We were frustrated and annoyed and it felt like we couldn't catch a break. But it also felt like God knew that we couldn't catch a break and he had us on his mind and he'd given us this prophetic word before the bad news I felt so comforted and seen and known. That is very easy for me to say because it was not my job. But I did. If anything, I feel like it turned us back on our knees, pleading for wisdom and understanding. We will go anywhere. God will do anything. So for over a full year, we prayed and prayed and prayed for God's provision and guidance in our life. And we had our second baby and I battled the postpartum anxiety, depression that went with it. It was another year that wasn't very easy or straightforward. One morning, Jonathan called John Lamute, remember, our old home group leader, and his former boss with a law question, and they hadn't talked in a number of years. And before John hanging up, John said, um, Hey, I just had a, a returning, not return from maternity leave. Any chance you'd ever be interested in working for me again? Jonathan wasn't sure what to say, because we'd always loved Santa Barbara, and we'd always really wanted to come back here. But the opportunity just never seemed right, and after all the hating on Sacramento that we'd done and all the wrestling, it really seemed like that's where God wanted us to be, and we were really happy there. We had bought the house and remodeled the house, and we were like, had our roots. A few hours later, Jonathan's boss pulled him into an unexpected meeting. Get this. You will never believe it. His boss said, we don't have a job for you anymore. You can stay here, or sorry, you can transfer to Reading, but the finances are typed here, so... Reading or no job. And we didn't know anyone in Reading. So you know what we did? Well, we prayed a lot. And then Jonathan called John back and said, How serious are you about that job? And we drove down to Santa Barbara and he did a ton of interviews and we dreamed about what life could be like here. And then within four weeks, we moved here. And in that month, as kind of final confirmation, we making the leap to pricey Santa Barbara, God gave me a job out of the blue. Someone offered me a job editing a magazine, from home. It all just felt like God knew and saw exactly what we needed. It felt like he said, I know what's best, and you do not, so let me just lay it all out for you. Within a few months, we found out that that writing office that Jonathan had been offered, it closed. So we were not only spared, but we entered an unbelievably sweet season here in Santa Barbara, where things just felt peaceful and easy, and it was the rest that we just so desperately needed It's been four years since we landed back here in Santa Barbara, and not every year has been like that first year. A few years ago, we added Luke, our youngest, to the crew of Chaos, and we've moved a couple times, and I've wrestled with my own vocation a lot. I've attempted at times to do too much and accomplish too much and hurry my way through the things that really matter. Last fall in particular... After a few short but kind of intense battles with some anxiety, I knew that something needed to change. I think anxiety is a signal in our brains that our souls are craving peace. And so I felt like I should spend some time trying to find that. Um, And I did a little mini retreat day of sorts just here in town. Peace, I think, is that presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. God's active voice showing us how to live and where to go and what to do. He's been very faithful to lead me in my adult years. But last year, my life got so loud, and the should voice in my head that's been there since a little girl was so loud that I didn't really know which voice was God. And I didn't know if I would ever be able to hear him again. So on my mini retreat day, I headed over to the labyrinth over by the cliffs on UCSB. If you don't know what a labyrinth is, it's an ancient tool that Christians sometimes use to meditate on God. Unlike a maze, there is one way in, there's no dead ends, and there's the same way back out. Like a maze, it's not a straightforward journey. At first, for some, a labyrinth might feel kind of frustrating. That day, for me, the labyrinth truly became the Christian symbol of my life. That we all start in the same place, and we end in the same place birth and death. And we spend a lifetime meandering along towards the center, sometimes closer to the Spirit of God and sometimes feeling real far, but within His grace the entire time. At my worst, I try to rush the walk. But I think that slow is actually the point. The Christian life is not like a maze. Getting lost is not actually possible. But what is possible is our own self getting in the way. I think about how many times I am dragging that China-sized, four China-sized suitcases behind me on this walk because I'm trying to be prepared for a life that can feel like a maze. Remember my nightmare as a child, the recurring one, where I know the wolves are hiding? Sometimes in my adult life, I'm still trying to be ready for the wolves along the way because I know they're out there and I know that they could strike at any time cancer, accidents, betrayal. Sometimes the wolves are even more sneaky. Power, wealth, comfort. My suitcases make me feel so happy and so secure. But during my seasons of unease and pain, it was never and it is never my own fixing that makes things easier. It is always the giving up and the letting go. It is the acceptance of grace and the releasing of striving and earning and controlling and proving. Some of you know that I'm a writer, and one of my favorite places to write for is this church and stand on this stage with my friend Anna Jordan and read some prayers and liturgy that we write together. And Anna is much smarter than I am, and she introduced me to the poet Wendell Berry, who I sometimes enjoy and sometimes don't understand at all. (laughs) And... I would like to read to end by reading you a poem that I do understand, or at least I think I do, and that I find comforting in this constant quest for stillness and release. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes as I read this poem and a prayer that I've written for you. Here's the poem, The Wild Geese. Horseback on Sunday morning, harvest over, we taste persimmon and wild grape, sharp, sweet of summer's end, In time's maze over fall fields, we name names that went west from here. Names that rest on graves. We open a persimmon seed to find the tree that stands in promise, pale in the seed's marrow. Geese appear high overhead, pass, and the sky closes. Abandon, as in love or sleep, holds them to their way. Clear in the ancient faith, what we need is here. And we pray not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What we need is here. My prayer for you tonight, sweet women, is this. Jesus, I acknowledge your spirit in this room. You are here and you are what we need. You are willing. You are able to carry our burdens, to comfort, to provide to lead, would you help us abandon ourselves and to be quiet in heart and in eye and to simply, slowly walk towards
0: you? Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that story just as much as I have. Fun fact about this particular speaker, uh, when I saw that she was sharing her story I perked up immediately because I went to high school with Leslie. And we have her with us on this podcast. And just when you would think, oh my gosh, what an amazing story, the end. That was so not the end. And a whole new chapter of her life started just weeks after she gave this story night. So I would just like to welcome you, Leslie, and invite you to catch us up On What's happened in your life since then?
1: Oh, man, it's wild. Thanks for having me. It's fun to to get to catch up and see you. Yes, you're right. I gave that story night in August of 2018. And then in middle of October, our life totally changed again unexpectedly. So when I gave that story night, we had just moved to a new house. And our middle son, who was five at the time, Owen, is a pretty sensitive kid. And so he, what we thought, had a really hard time adjusting to a move to a new house and was just kind of cranky and tired a lot and behaviorally was having some issues. And we kind of chalked it up to a big transition in his life. But it kind of went on and on for about six weeks. And then he started complaining of stomach pains. In early October. And so eventually we took him. We actually had a few friends that were physicians that kind of felt his tummy. And I was very nervous because when you have a husband that's had cancer, your mind goes to the worst places. And so I asked a few different friends, would you help me figure out if this is something to be worried about or not? Or am I just being a hypochondriac? I think I talked about in in the story night. That I gave, I talked about how I really can struggle with worry and anxiety around our health and my children's health because you always second guess yourself, especially if you've had a health crisis that you've missed the first time or had a misdiagnosis. And a lot of questions that go back to who do I trust and can I trust healthcare providers? Can I trust doctors? So we had two different physicians look at him informally and they both said, You have no reason to be worried. Everything seems fine. But that kind of nagging mom feeling. Kept at me. And we finally took him to the doctor. And she immediately, I knew by the look on her face that something was awful going on. And we were sent right away to get an ultrasound and chest x ray. And I knew as soon as I was driving to the ultrasound what was going on. There was another child in town that had similar symptoms years ago. And I knew what her diagnosis was. And I just knew that he was going to have the same diagnosis. And so my husband came and met us at the ultrasound place. And within two hours, we were back at the pediatrician's office. And she said, it's, um, we're pretty sure it's kidney cancer. He has a huge tumor on his um, left kidney. And at the time, they thought it was just a tumor on that side. He ended up having small tumors on the other side as well. And so his diagnosis eventually through biopsy was bilateral Wilms tumor and that just means kidney cancer on both sides. It's a really rare cancer. There's about 500 kids a year with regular wombs and much less with bilateral, I think about 25 kids a year in the U.S. And so we were quickly back down on the cancer route, and it was devastating. He was our kid that I got pregnant with him right when Jonathan finished treatment, and my biggest fear when I got pregnant with him was that we got pregnant too soon and that he would have health issues and Of course, my mind went there like, what does this all mean, God? And is this our fault? And we were thrust just into the world of of cancer. So he started treatment right away in that October and ended up going through about seven months of chemotherapy in addition to some gnarly other procedures. He had a huge surgery in January of 2019, and they removed the kidney and the tumor that was on the kidney as well as part of his other kidney. And so that happened and did radiation after that and continue to do chemotherapy. So all in all, it was from October to June or so, which ironically was my husband's treatment plan as well, an October to June, October diagnosis and finished in June. And so it couldn't have been any more similar. We also joked that, my husband's cancer they said this is the most curable kind of cancer for adults but you have the worst stage <laughs> and owen was the same way very curable cancer generally in kids and one of the the worst stages so it felt like we were yeah living living kind of a parallel life and living in a parallel universe again but i think the the hardest thing for us at the very beginning of that diagnosis was that I, I did feel some pain around um, asking God, like, why would you let this happen again to us? I think the human mind, sometimes we let ourselves think, if I've gone through something hard before, then I've paid my dues and I don't have to do it again. And it felt cruel. I asked questions like, are you trying to teach me something? And if so, this is a really dumb way to teach me something because I already learned what I thought you wanted to teach me last time. Why, if you're a loving God, would you let something horrible like this happen? And then I think the hardest ones for me was the questions around if if I lose my son, am I going to also lose my faith? Because this just doesn't seem fair. And I don't know that I asked that question with my husband. I don't think I ever went to God and said, I don't trust you and I'm, I might lose my faith over this. But with our son, it was pretty immediate that I felt like I, I could see myself walking away if this doesn't play out the way that I want it to play out. And that added pain on top of the pain that i was feeling over him suffering was was having to wrestle with my faith during that time and i think probably the most powerful moment to me in those early weeks was going to the elders at our church and telling them that and confessing i'm not doubting i'm just pretty confident that if we lose him i'm going to like walk away because i'm so angry and they were so so sweet with us they laid hands on us and just prayed over us and and i feel like i just had this moment where I realized God is bigger than me threatening to walk away from my faith. He's bigger than my doubts. He's bigger than my anger in this moment. He gets it. He's just as sad with me. He's just as angry that my son is suffering. He doesn't want this for him. Can he use it for good? Yes. Will he use it for good? Yes. But he gets it. And I can can be angry and I can doubt and I can be upset. And that is all okay for quite a few weeks. I had just moments where I just yelled at God and it felt really good because being honest in front of him allowed me to keep talking to him. And that is, I think what helps me get through that whole year was just talking to him and not having an agenda with it, but learning how to tell him how I felt and being, I guess, okay in the moments where I didn't hear him and didn't know what he was doing, but just kind of kept going back. So Owen finished treatment in June of last year. And just this last week, he had his one-year cancer-free anniversary, which was so exciting. And we celebrated with a little luau in front of our house, just the five of us. And he's doing really, really well. It's been really fun to watch him get his hair back and his energy back and jump into kindergarten life and start thriving again. And now we we continue to wait for, for many years. He'll be scanned and watched closely and we don't know what God's full plan is for his little life. But without a doubt, I think God's love, lo- his love more than anything, was over and in our house. And his peace just continued to be the thing that kind of got us through it all, just like the first time. So he continued to show up and I, I'm so grateful.
0: As are we and everyone I know that was part of the church family or maybe saw a Facebook update that prayed and thought about you so many times through this journey. You know, when I had the idea to do sort of these throwback podcasts and then have somebody kind of catches up on their life that you, you sort of think, well, you've told the your story, like the big part of your story. Your catch up is probably just going to be something lighthearted <laughs> And you're so not that. No, I'm sorry. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not. I mean, don't apologize by any means. It's just such an example of, gosh, right when you think the heaviest part of your story is finished, God's so not done with you. Mm -hmm. And I think so many people relate to that where you think, all right, you already put me through this. So clearly you wouldn't now put me through that. (laughs) Right, right. And it,
1: it's, I think it's so common that that's kind of how we all think as humans. And yet there's nothing biblically true about that, of thinking you can go through something hard in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s and nothing hard is going to ever happen again. I mean, right. I think we've all realized even during this pandemic season that um, you live in a really broken world and there's just so much pain in it, so much pain. And there is so much beauty and so much hope and so much redemption. And when we have gone through pain at the end of these seasons, although it's never really the end, right? Like we're always living in this broken world. But when we've gotten through the the hardest parts, I think what stands out to me is the beauty of Christ, that he's gone before us, right? Like mm-hmm. he was mortal and he died and he knows how it feels to suffer. And he knows the pain that I feel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that is that is so powerful because I think that that's a, something that in some faith traditions, we skip over that idea of acknowledging how we feel and bringing it to God. And one of the the biggest gifts coming out of this season is that I have been learning how to do that better. And my prayer time has looked differently because of it. I'm sitting in like a little prayer closet right now that I just made for our family, for my kids. And it's become like a prayer spot for me. And I have things on the walls around our emotions and our feelings. And where do we feel things in our body? Because I think it's so important For me, when I think about raising my kids, but also for myself to say, God's not afraid of our feelings and he's not afraid of us being angry at him or anyone. He's not afraid of us saying, I'm I'm lonely. I'm disappointed. I thought life was going to be different. He wants to hear that. And it's only by bringing those things up first that he's able to start healing us. And that's been really huge for me this year, is how do I deal with some of the trauma that we've experienced? And and I think it does start with paying attention to how we feel.
0: I couldn't agree more. And uh, on that note, you, you've sort of answered part of it already, but I had wanted to just ask if you had words of hope uh, and encouragement for other women that are going through similar things. Husband, Going through cancer, child going through cancer, any of the other things that were part of your story that you talked about that for those listening where you're able to say, you know, over this podcast, I get it. Mm-hmm. I understand you in a way that other people maybe can't understand you. Yeah. And so what what additional words might you have for those women? Yeah. Yeah, I think more
1: than anything that God sees us in our pain. And I guess that, that kind of goes with that idea of talking to Him about our feelings. But I, I think we can tell ourselves the lie that we've been forgotten or that God doesn't care or even that God caused this. We can believe the lie that He gave my husband or my son cancer because He just is tricky, you know? And you can start believing the lie that God is tricky. He's just always wanted to keep us on our toes and test us. There's not biblical truth around that. He cares for us so deeply. And yes, to painful things happen. Yes. If you are a Christian, our basic theology is that there's a God that came, that lived on earth with us, that figured out that this was a hard world and overcame it all, died and overcame it all. And so at the very basic level, when we are suffering, that God knows what that suffering feels like and that he came to make it better. And if I didn't have that hope, I would feel um, devastated, even still with a son that's healthy because I'd be walking around terrified. At any point in time, his cancer could come back. Jonathan's cancer could come back. I, I think I'd be so afraid with quarantine season and pandemic and COVID. I'd be terrified that all of us were going to get sick at any point in time. And, and do I have worries sometimes? Yes, absolutely. But having the hope of knowing that God is bigger than all those things, that our life here on earth isn't done, that's what like, gets me through the day. And that's what, what allows me to live in the freedom that I feel like I'm living in. So do I still cry? often and frequently. Yes. Do I sometimes still get mad at God? Absolutely. But I think that that bigger hope is what has carried me through and and realizing, yeah, he's not trying to punish me. He's not, he's
0: not tricky. I love that phrase. He's not tricky. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've never heard that really, I've never heard the word tricky used like that, but it's, it's so true. And how many of us think that or feel that like i don't, don't understand what you're doing you were you were up to something and i mean he he's always doing something behind the scenes that we don't fully understand but yeah. but it, you're right it's not in a tricky way
1: no he's he's mysterious but actually, that's like the best part about him too, right? <laughs> is, is like, why would you want to follow someone that was just totally predictable and that we then all acted like robots? I mean, he's mysterious, and I'm gonna have a lot of questions for him when I get to heaven, like a lot. And <laughs> I'm gonna too. want, him, like, I'm going I'm gonna want him to walk me through, like, and so what were you gonna do with this exactly, and what, <laughs> you know, how were you gonna redeem that? Um, but but I do think it's really important to have a distinction between mysterious and tricky. And, and to continue to go back to like, we are so loved and Owen is so loved and he's so seen and so known and so loved more than I love him. So if someone is listening that feels forgotten or feel like they've, they've just had a hard life, yeah, I would just want them to know they're not forgotten. They're so loved. They're so seen. And, and yes, I do think that God really does redeem all situations. If we're willing to let him, he will do beautiful things with our stories.
0: He will. I'm just so grateful that you were willing to open up your life story to the Santa Barbara audience and very grateful to Santa Barbara Community Church for giving me the audio link so that we could put that in our throwback podcast. And thank you for taking time to hang out in your cute little closet there to <laughs> come, on, come on a Zoom call with me so we could do a, a catch up. Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me. I'm really grateful that they had me share my story too. Yeah. And thanks for- for putting it on here. I hope it encourages someone.
0: I do. I know there are many women who will need to hear this. And that's why we share our stories. With that, I was hoping if you don't mind that you would uh, just close us in prayer, keeping love. in mind specifically the woman who really related to your story. Hmm. Yes,
1: I'm happy to. Hopefully I don't cry. Sometimes when I pray, I start crying. That's really embarrassing. So I'll try not to do that today. (laughs) It's all good. (laughs) God likes our tears too. (laughs) He likes our tears. (laughs) He's seen a lot of mine. Uh, (laughs) Me too. Oh, God. What a joy and privilege it is to be your daughter and to know that you shape our stories, that you care about our stories. Thank you for the opportunity to share mine. I pray for any woman listening right now that feels defeated. I pray for the woman listening who's been dealt what feels like an unfair card. For the people that have had pain over and over and over again, and they look around and they feel like nobody else has had the same pain that they've had. God, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to them in huge ways. God, your Holy Spirit is so powerful. You gave your Holy Spirit to us so that we would see Some of your mystery here on earth. And so I pray that you would cover these women in love in this moment. I pray that you would be a safe place for them to turn. I pray for whatever pain they're experiencing, whatever healing they're asking for, that you would heal them. I know that you have healed the men in my life. And it might sound like I can give you praise because you've healed them, but my praise for you is so much bigger than your healing. It's the presence that you are to me. And so while we do pray for, big miracles for those people that think that a loved one isn't going to make it. We pray for miracles, but we also just pray for your presence. We pray for both. And I pray that your mighty works will be done amongst this church and these women, and that we would give you glory because of the ways that you work. Thank you for loving and caring for us. Thank you for weeping with us. Thank you for giving us the full freedom to express our emotions to you and to our friends. And I pray all these things in your glorious name. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you so much. I know God's using your story.
1: Mm, Thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me.
0: For everyone listening, we hope you enjoyed this, that this touched you, and that you will come back for the next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.